Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Bob Smeaton, who joins me to discuss his book, From Benwell Boy to 46th Beatle. Bob was a star in his hometown of Newcastle in the northeast of England with his band White Heat in the early 80s. And then he found himself involved in music documentaries when that came to an end at the start of the 90s. Bob then spent three years in the first part of the 90s working on the Beatles anthology film, interviewing Paul, George and Ringo and working with the production team to make the series which we all know and love. Bob Smeaton, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm doing fine, Joe, and it's great to finally see you in the flesh. I've seen your your name pop up many a times, and I've thought, that sounds like a really good idea for a blog. Because I tell you, there are so many Beatles books out there, as we know, right? Some some good, some bad, some brilliant. Well, thank you for, for joining us. You mention in the book that George Harrison, one, a certain George Harrison once said to you, you'll write a book one day, you're going to write a, a book. And it turns out he was right. What was it that led you to writing and publishing this book at, at this point in your life? I think we've been working on the anthology for about three years. So like I'd met, you know, I'd spoken to Paul, George and Ringo and all that. And, you know, George was always very, very friendly. You know, George, I love George. George was great. Like he turned around and said, one day, Bob, you're going to write a book about the Beatles. And I said, George, why would I want to write a book about the Beatles? I says, there's thousands of books out there. He says, no, he says, Bob, he says, you've sat there for like four years and heard us tell all these tales and I said, no, believe me, George, I'm not going to write a Beatles book. But then, you know, flash forward 20 years. So there I was, I was in Brazil. So I was climbing a mountain, but I'm not a mountain climber. I tell you what I'm going to do. It was a really grey day in Rio. So I thought, what can you do you know, when the weather's not that great? I thought, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to climb this big mountain called Pedra de Gave, I think it's called, right? So, so, you know, I'm not into hiking. That's not my bag. So like, I start this climb in about, you know, two hours. I'm nowhere near the top of this mountain. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I've got flip-flops on. I haven't got any water. I haven't got a phone signal. I thought, you know, I could die on this mountain. No one would ever know whatever happened to that guy, Bob Smeaton. So, so I keep climbing. I keep climbing. Four hours later, I finally reach the top of this mountain, right? So I get to the top of the mountain you know, looks down and there's the beach, there's Copacabana Beach, and it looks great. And I thought, God, you know, I've made it. I've made it up at the top of this mountain. So it felt like a great achievement. So, you know, going down was a lot easier than what going up was. So I get back down. So, you know, that night I'm sat, you know, by the beach, I've got my drink in hand. So like I started thinking, you know, it felt as though life was like a climb, you know, you climb, you know, up this mountain. So like I felt as though, right, I've reached the top of this mountain. There I was a bloke, I think I was either 53 or 54. Maybe now's the time for to look back down the mountain and sort of think about this sort of journey. So like I thought, like, you know, where would I start? You know, where do you start the story? So then I thought straight away, you know, I make films. So I thought, don't start at the beginning. Start somewhere really, really interesting. So I thought, right, a great place to start walking on stage, Madison Square Gardens, picking up my Grammy for the Beatles anthology. I thought, right, okay, there's my opening chapter. 
final chapter, climbing this mountain in Brazil 20 years later. So then I had to fill in that middle bit. And I thought, you know, but I don't want to write the Beatles book. Like I said to George Harrison, look, George, I don't want to write the Beatles book. But four years, you know, four, four, maybe five years I spent working on that project. It was life changing. Changed my life completely, you know, just to be working on, working with the biggest band in the world ever, getting to sit there and speak to Paul, George and Ringo. I never met John Lennon. You know, it changed my life. You know, that's the start. Madison Square Garden, climbing that mountain in Brazil. That's the end section. That's what I thought at the time. In you know, what's the biggest thing in my life? You know, five years working on the anthology. Yeah, that's the long story, which could be longer, Joe, believe me. <laughs> okay, so you, you start the book, you, you discuss your really uh, locally successful career in various different bands, uh, and then you, you find yourself in kind of music visual production. How did you get from, from being a, a lead singer in, in, in several bands? How, how did you get involved initially in working on kind of music-related films? Well, I was in a band called White Heat. So we were, we were really successful up in Newcastle. Yeah, and we had a big following, signed a record deal with, with you know, Virgin Records. You know, we made an album, we made a bunch of singles. Check out White Heat Nervous Breakdown on YouTube and you'll see me in all my glory from all those years ago. So there I was, I'm in a band. So the guy that made the videos for the band, you know, was this guy called Jeff Wanfall. So Jeff Wanfall had worked for the Tube and Jeff, and Jeff had made a bunch of videos for the band. You know, Jeff and I were really, really close friends, as close as you could be. Jeff and I would have great adventures and Jeff was a big fan of the band and a big fan of mine. So the band, you know, the band break up. I says, Jeff, you know, what do I do? I was a singer in a rock and roll band. And Jeff says, work with me in television. I says, but television, you know, it's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a working class guy. I used to work in the shipyards. He says, what you've learned over the past five or six years, you know, so much about music, you know, about mixing desks, desks and that's a Les Paul, that's a Fender Stratocaster. Jeff says, I'll make music films work with me. So, you know, Jeff and I had worked on a bunch of films. I think it was the end of 1991. You know, Jeff's an enthusiast. And, you know, Jeff would say there was 10 jobs happening. If one of those jobs happened, it was brilliant. So I remember one day, you know, I was in Newcastle and I saw Jeff and he said, it's on, you know, this gig I couldn't tell you about. It's the biggest rock and roll gig in the world. And I says, what's that? He says, we're going to do the story of the Beatles. And I thought, that's great thinking. It's another one of these Jeff one for jobs that might not happen. So then Jeff came down here, down to, you know, London, you know, he'd met Neil Aspinall. He sort of came back. He said, look, it's definitely on starting in January, in January 1992. So, you know, me, Jeff and Andy Matthews, who was a brilliant, brilliant editor, came down, met Neil. And Neil was great. You know, I loved, you know, I can honestly say I loved that man. Neil Aspinall. And the thing is, right, Neil, Neil reminded me so much of John Lennon. He sounded like John Lennon and he wouldn't take any bullshit. And Neil said, it's the Beatles story. So this, because at the time, like it wasn't called the Beatles anthology. It was just the story of the Beatles. So we sat there and, you know, and Neil had been compiling archive for like years and years, buying up shows that the Beatles had appeared on. So we said, okay, then, you know, when do we start? And Neil Aspinall says, right, you know, you start now. 
and we says, you know, when do we finish? Because normally, you know, it's like, you know, you start in January and they'll say, right, you've got six months in which to finish the film. And Neil says, it's finished when it's finished. And we thought, That's how, that could be good or it could be bad. And then Jeff said, and how long is it? He says, it's as long as it needs, needs for it to be. And so we thought, great. So, you know, we started. So I think after a year, um, I think we cut the first program. And I think it ran for like four hours. And they hadn't even formed the Beatles yet. You know, it was just like, so we knew this was, and Neil was great. Neil would watch it first. Neil would watch a rough cut. He'd say, oh, you know, you cannot do that, Bob. You've got to change that. If Paul sees that, it'll go crazy. So Neil would watch it. You know, we'd sit in the edit suite, you know, make a few changes, send it off to Paul, George, Ringo and Yoko. They would come back. So we'd be back in the edit, make our few changes, ask them more material. So that went on for four years for to make the TV versions, then the extra year for to make the, you know, the box set. Not, you know, the sort of like 12 hour version. So that's what it was. You know, it was, a, it was such a great job every day walking in and what we're going to do today we're going to listen to Beatles music and we're going to, you know, I've got to speak to Paul next week and then George. It was just, you know, I was, you know, I know it's a cliche. I was truly blessed. It was such a great time. And like I said earlier, Joe, it was life changing. So tell us a little bit about your first kind of encounters with each Beatles. So, so your role was to work with Jules Holland. Jules is great. Neil had said he, he doesn't want voiceover. Like, you know, it's the Beatles in their own words. So it'll be, Paul George Ringo filmed John, you know, audio interviews, stuff that had already been filmed, George Martin and Derek Taylor. So we said, but Neil, you've got to be in the film. And Neil said, oh, I'm not really sure. But I think Neil secretly thought, great, Neil, Neil, you know, he was the fifth Beatle, you know, he had to be in there. So, you know, Jules is great. But Jules isn't, you know, Jules is great to sit down and chat to somebody but he's not a sort of an interviewer that's going to dig for to get the information for to make a film. So my job at first was set the questions for Jules. So I would, you know, I would read all the Beatles books. I would play all the albums. You know, the first time that we sat down with Ringo, the first person, all it was talking about was childhood. Set Jules the questions. And I would have like 10 pages of questions. Jules would sit there. And he would ask the questions. And I would be sat there frustrated thinking we haven't got the answer that we need for certain questions. So I would, at the end, I would just say, Ringo, can I ask you one more thing? So I would dive in and I would get the question and I would get the information. Then we'd go into the edit suite, start to put Ringo's stuff in. Then next person, Paul, go and ask Paul pretty much like the same questions. You know, when did you first hear music? When did you first meet Ringo? When did you first meet George? When did you first meet John? So we'd pretty much ask the three of them like the same questions. Then we'd just put together all their interviews. And we had, we had so much archive material. So we'd start to sort of weave it. Then we'd say, right, the next program is from when they formed the band up to when they got signed. And that was the way it was sort of roughly. So we knew that, you know, that's all we had to think about. Get a rough cut of the first program, you know, get the Beatles feedback, start on the second program. And then suddenly, why, you know, like three years down the line. But often what, what would happen was, you know, Jules is a great guy and he's, you know, I love Jules. Mm. 
but he's very, very busy, right? So sometimes, you know, they get in touch and say, okay, Ringo's ready for to be interviewed on Thursday. This is on the Monday, right? So we'd contact Jules and Jules say, oh, I'm sorry, Bob, I've got to do a show. I've got another gig on. Look, now I'm setting the questions. So I said, I can interview Ringo. So they said, okay, no, but the first person I actually interviewed was um, Derek Taylor. And Derek was great because I remember the first time I met him, Derek, you know, you know, he's such a fantastic guy, really funny, so kind. So we're all there, you know, in the production office, he turns around and, and says to me, it's good to see some young people around here for a change. And I felt great. So the first person that, that I sat down and spoke to was, you know, Derek Taylor. Then I interviewed George Martin, then Ringo. Now Ringo, George Martin, genius guy, Derek Taylor, genius guy, but they're not a Beatle. So, you know, it's a whole different ball game. So I'm sat there and you've got Ringo Starr in front of you, right? And you've got asking the questions. But the thing was that they really wanted for to make the anthology, even though it wasn't actually called that then. But they knew that, that if they didn't like it, it would never see the light of day. It would just be a, one of these Beatles projects that stays on the stays in the cupboard. It would never. So, you know, they knew that if they said something that they didn't like, that they could take it out. So it was interesting because I think that, you know, once you start to sort of speak to somebody inside my head for, for the first time that you sit down, it's Ringo Starr that sat in front of you. But after a minute or so, all you're thinking about is I've got to get from this guy sat in front of me the information for to make the uh, film. So, you know, that happens every time, whether it's Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Elton John, Lou Reed, once you sit down, you just switch into that mode in your head where, okay, it's a job. You've got to focus on making sure that they say what you want them to say or what they actually say makes sense. So once I got, you know, once I'd done George Martin and I'd done Derek Taylor and then I did Ringo, it was like, okay, bring them on. And then we did, did Paul and then it was George. And so it was, it was just great, you know, and they were, but they were so, they were so open and so honest and so up for it. So of the three of them that goes, you, you know, you, as you say in the book, you spent a lot of time with the three of them over the course of those years in all these different locations. And I've got a few questions about the locations that will, that will come to yeah. um, of the three of them. Who did you enjoy? Was there one of the Beatles that you particularly enjoyed spending time with that was particularly open and easy to talk to? Paul loves to talk. You know, you ask Paul a question, he will always give you good material. Ringo can be a bit spiky sometimes, but, you know, he's Ringo Starr. He's allowed for to be spiky. I think at the start of the anthology, George, he was probably the one that was less keen. I think he was a bit... You know, why do I have to go back? You know, George was in the Twaddling Wilburys. You know, he doesn't need to worry about the Beatles. He was in with Bob and Tom Petty and all that. So George at first, I think he was a bit like, you know, why do I have to do this? Once he'd seen the first cut of the first program, I think George realized, okay, let's get serious. And then George would be, you know, he would be the one I felt that had, you know, thought about it the most and thought, right, I want to say this and I want to say that. But, but I love George. With me, you know, I think George actually liked me. 
you know, he was always, hi, Bob, great to see you, and really, really friendly. But Paul, you know, like I say, totally professional. And anyone that meets him, I'll tell you what it is, right? You know, I met Paul, uh, I think I haven't seen him for about three years, right? So, like, I was walking through Soho about five years ago. So I'm walking through Soho. There's a main friend of mine. So she says, oh, look, there's your mate across the, the road. So it's Paul, right? So I says, oh, yeah. So Paul, you know, he sees me. He said, hey, Bob, comes across the road. And he hadn't seen me for three years. Paul McCartney, if he meets you once, he will meet you again in five years' time. He will remember your name. He will remember what you're up to. That is Paul McCartney. He is totally professional. And he was same in the anthology. He would come in, sit down, he'd talk about stuff, knowing that if there was something he said that he didn't like, we could take it out later in the edit. But George, you know, I'll say this now, George was my favourite. Okay, understood. Uh, so talking about Paul and, and some of the locations, one of the, the kind of slightly strangest locations of all the interviews in the anthology is Paul on the boat. Now tell us about Paul on the boat. Is that, was that on the Thames? Was that yeah. in some far-flung exotic location? How did that come about? Well, what happened was, you know, first of all, you know, when we first started, like, like we thought that, you know, it's the Beatles, you know, where do we interview them? And we thought, you know, we've got to interview them in big locations, like at the top of the Empire State Building, by the Hollywood sign, Anfield Football Stadium, all these big iconic places. But in the end, we, we, we thought, no, you know, what they're saying is more important than where they are saying it. Paul, you know, would go down to Paul's studio or he would come up to this, you know, the place in Wendell Road, which was in Shepherd's Bush. That's where I was based. So then, but Paul one day said, right, we're going to, in the next interview, I want to do it on my boat. And I thought, great. I had this vision of like, you know, a Sunseeker boat in the south of France or something. And I thought, I'd get me Speedos or I'd be down there on Paul McCartney's boat. This is going to be great. And Paul says, no, no, he says, it's not. He says, it's down beside my place. So we goes down there and it wasn't a luxury liner. It was this little boat, but it was great. But the problem was, it was so freaking noisy, right? So, you know, we're trying to record sound and Paul's there, you know, he's driving his boat and Jules just stood there and I'm like, you know, down underneath it. And I can hardly hear what Paul's saying because of this noise of this boat. And George would say, so, you know, we did Paul and his boat and then George would say, okay, so you went to, to Paul's place, come to my place. So then we'd go to Friar Park and we'd go in George's garden and then we went to Los Angeles. So, you know, so then Ringo says, okay, so we've done Paul on his boat. You've done George at his place. Come to Los Angeles, to my place. So I'm thinking, Los Angeles, here we come, you know. So Jules Wobb wasn't available. So we go to LA. We interviewed Ringo. I think we stayed in LA for four days and we interviewed Ringo twice. You know, we interviewed him. It was some private members club, which was on the um, Sunset Strip. Then we interviewed him at a house that we hired, which was down in Malibu. And it was great. You know, I'm sat there by the ocean and I'm, you know, I'm interviewing Ringo Starts. Like 10 years earlier, I was working in the shipyards, Swan Hunter's shipyards up in Newcastle. And I'm thinking, pinch yourself, Bob, because this might never happen again. It was just, it was great, you know. But, you know, the locations. And also, you know, over the four-year period, 
George's hair would be short and then we'd see him again in six months' time and his hair had grown. So, you know, you watch it through and that hair, you know, long hair, short hair, George had a moustache or he's grown a bit of a beard. But that's what happens, you know, filming over the course of, you know, four years. It was great. It was such an adventure. Was there a huge amount of interview footage that, that wasn't used? I mean, would you spend like a whole day with them? Would it just be a snatched hour here, here and there? Was there? Is there a lot more kind of archived? So what we did was, so we're shooting on film at the time. So like, you know, a roll of film runs for 10 minutes. So it's not like now where you shoot on tape or you shoot on a card where you just roll and roll and roll. And, you know, film's expensive. So every, you know, you put your roll of film in, you film for that 10 minutes, then you got to take the roll of film out, put it in the bag, put a new roll in. But we were never sort of structured to it's an hour long. It was like, okay, you know, this is what we've got to talk about from when they got signed up to, you know, Love Me Do. So sometimes with, with Paul, that might take two hours and we had loads of film stock because we didn't want to bring a situation where we've got no film left. So it was as long as it takes. But, you know, once we actually reached that point, it was like, okay, that's it. You know, that's what Paul had thought about. Because what I would do, like, you know, we'd send him the um, questions, not the actual questions, but say, right, you know, Paul, for this next setup, look, you know, we're going to be talking about the first album and going to Abbey Road the first time when you met Brian Epstein the first time, when you met George Martin. about So Paul would know and Ringo would know and George would know. Also, what we actually did was, you know, I would listen to hours and hours of John Lennon audio. So normally I would choose my questions based on what we knew that John had talked about. So we say, right, you know, we've got John talking about, you know, Brian Epstein. So we can ask Paul, George and Ringo, you know, the same questions. So I would say that from each interview, we'd probably use, if we interviewed them for like two hours, I'd say we'd probably used for, for each program, 20 minutes top. But there was a lot of it used later when I did, you know, the Beatles on record documentary. So I used the audio interviews because all that material, it's still there. It's stored in the Apple archive. It's on film. And I'm sure that somewhere you know, I don't know, but somewhere down the line, they will have plans because, you know, I think that Apple tend to think long-term. Yeah, but, you know, we, well, actually, when we got close to the end of the anthology, actual um, filming, and we filmed the material at Friar Park. That was when they got together, you know, Paul, George and Ringo and they played. And that was like, I was ready for to get her up and start singing. I thought, I'm going to grab that microphone. Jeff was saying to me, don't you fucking dare become John Lennon in this band. So I just stood there. Like, like we put the cut, you know, we got the cut done, showed it to ABC in the States. They said it would be great for to see more of the three guys. It's great to see them individually, but to see, you know, Paul, George and Ringo either talking or playing together, that was gold because no one had seen them you know, in the same room for God knows when. So we did the session that we did at Abbey Road where I went in and I was, there was, you know, George Martin, Paul, George and Ringo. That's when we sat, went through the multi-tracks. So then we said, right, you know, why do we interview the three of them, you know, at the same time? So he goes down into the big studio. Now, Joe, I can tell you, interviewing one Beatle, it's quite nerve wracking. 
having three of them sat in front of you, what used to be the four-headed beast was the three-headed beast, right? And I was like, that was when I was really scared. But George knew that, that I was a little bit nervous and he kept saying, okay, Bob, what next? And that was great. So like, like, we shot all that material, but I don't think that we used any of it in the anthology. But we did use it in the DVD extras. Look at the DVD extras and you'll see me from when I was a young man from those sessions. And it was, you know, but that was great because there they were, you know, playing the multi-track tapes from Revolver. And I, but that was scary. And also, you know, I didn't know at the time, this is my claim to fame, Joe. I was the last person ever, and nobody would be able to do it now, to actually interview Paul, George and Ringo collectively in the room at the same time. Never mind anybody else who can say, ah, so that was my, that's why I named my book The 46th Beatle. That was my claim to fame, <laughs> if ever there was one. So what was it like? What did you observe about the three of them when they were in a room together? That footage that you describe, yeah, it, it's on the extras of the, the box set of the anthology DVDs. Yeah. And they play some of Golden Slumbers and they play a bit of early version of Tomorrow Never Knows. And George starts making these jokes about uh, Phil Collins, bring Phil Collins in and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What did you observe about the three of them together? Were they... Were they happy and relaxed in each other's company on that day? For anyone that reads my book, they realise that I still do work for Apple occasionally, right? I never spill the beans. All I can say is that day it was great, but George Harrison took control. I think on that day, you know, I think George had spent, you know, I think that everyone knows this. Everyone knows that in the Beatles, John and Paul, they were the driving force. And sometimes George, even though George wrote great songs and he was a big part of that band, he might have felt that sometimes he was sidelined. Well, you know, George says in the anthology, John and Paul had all these wonderful hits. How does he get his songs on? I think that over the years, George had probably thought he's been hanging out with Bob Dylan. He's been hanging out with Tom Petty. I don't think George was happy for to take a back seat. So George, you know, he was, he was very vocal in that session and there was a lot of material that, you know, we, you know, we couldn't squeeze it all in. But I think that Paul was quite happy to take a back seat then and let George, you know, let George, and George would say, you know, who was playing bass on that track? And he says, it wasn't me. So it was interesting that, you know, songs that we love, we think, you know, and, you know who plays bass on, you know, Golden Slumbers, who plays a piano? We thought if anybody's bound to, to know, Paul, George, Ringo, they would know, but they couldn't remember because for them, that was a session that had happened 50 years earlier or something. I think that they enjoyed each other's company. You know, it was great to get together. Plus, I think that when they did, like, you know, the Free as a Bird track, I think, you know, once again, I think that they enjoyed it for what it would be, you know, working on something. That's because that was the four of them but I don't think that they would have ever thought about, you know, actually getting back together and playing as a band because, you know, why, you know, they were the Beatles. That was John, Paul, George and Ringo, you know, just to see the three of them there, it was great because that, you know, they were the Beatles. And I'll tell you an interesting thing about the, um, that track, Free as a Bird. Really early on, Neil had said, you know, what they might do, you know, they might actually record some incidental music. And we thought that would be fantastic, you know, new Beatles music. And then, you know, we heard a rumour that they might be working on some new songs. 
But that's all we heard. And then Neil Aspel came in you know, into the edit suite yesterday and he had a tape. Now he had a DAT tape. So like he brought it in. He said, I'm going to play you something. Puts the DAT in and he and turns the speakers up really loud. And it was free as a bird, right? It was a Beatles track. It was a new Beatles track. And we were all sat there, you know, so excited for to hear it. So Neil said, look, you cannot mention this to anybody because nobody knows yet. So, you know, I love singing. That's what I did. I was a singer in a band, right? So, you know, we go downstairs. So I'm, so I'm walking around. I'm going, free as a bird. Neil said, what are you doing, Bob? I said, I'm singing the song. He says, don't go walking out the bloody door singing free as a bird, man. So I had to stop singing it, you know, but it was, it was great. It was just, you know, it was a moment. It's like, you know, those are the moments that, you know, because normally I don't talk a lot about, you know, like working on the anthology. Like I don't do, you know, I don't turn up at, you know, Beatles, you know, seminars and tell the same stories. But because of what I was about my sort of book, I thought, great, I'll talk about it. But, you know, but the anthology was, was and is such a, big, such a big part of my story. As I said earlier on, Joe, it was life changing. It changed my life. You know, I know the Beatles changed a lot of people's lives just by, you know, great music that made people pick up the guitar. Those years I spent working on the anthology, it changed my life completely. It still changes my life every day. I still speak to, you know, Jonathan Clyde, who's at Apple. I'm still, you know, sort of involved. So it's like, it was life-changing. It was like, you know, I was so, so lucky, I tell you. you. You certainly were. How did you feel when it was finished? Was it an easy process to edit and, and get it to be the final product that we all saw? What did you feel like that um, that first night that you watched it on, on TV? You must have been immensely proud of, of the job that you did. Well, you know, I think putting it together, you know, I've worked on, I've done, I've done loads of music documentaries, right? And I can tell you what, working on the anthology, it was one of the easiest editorial processes. I've worked with bands, not mention any names, where, you know, the singer, he doesn't want this in, they don't want that, you cannot say this, you cannot say that. With the Beatles, they had, they had minimum comments. Normally things like, you know, they'd say like, why have you spent half an hour talking about Sgt. Pepper? And we would say, well, it's Sgt. Pepper. It's the greatest album ever. And they would say, well, actually, George Harrison would say, oh, you know, actually, I preferred Revolver. So, you know, you've got to give that the same amount of time. So actually, you know, trying to cut the thing down, that was fairly straightforward. So when it first screened, it screened first across in the States. So I was very lucky to actually fly out there to um, Los Angeles. I think they showed the first two programs on ABC um, in the States. So I actually went out there with a couple of mates, you know, I got a flight sorted out. I've been earning dough for five years. Flew to Los Angeles, you know, booked into the Mondrian, sat there in the hotel bar. And there it was, you know, the first two programs. And, and it was just like, time just, just like flew back, you know, flew past. Then you think to yourself, okay, that was great. What do you do now? It's like, you know, it's like I was talking about earlier, Joe, you know, that was the top of the mountain. You know, when you've made a documentary about the greatest band of all time, what do you do after that? You know, I should have retired. You know, you just think, okay. But also, you know, what one thing I must say, it was a good team of people. I think there was probably eight of us that worked on it. Me, Andy Matthews, Jeff Wonfor, Nell Burley, Bryony Cranston, Neil Aspinall, Butfoot. Now you work on a production. 
in there's more people. I think it was a team of about eight or nine people. That's all it was in the offices in Wendell Road in Shepherd's Bush. We'd go in there every day. But when it was over, it was like, what do I do now? It's finished. Tell us a little bit about, you mentioned it at the start of the book, the night of the Grammys. I mean, that must have been, uh, I'm, I'm sure most people listening to this podcast probably haven't won a Grammy. So it would be great to hear a little bit about the, expe- <laughs> the experience of, of someone that had. Um, yeah, tell us about that night. Must have been an extremely surreal evening for you. Well, I'll tell you what happened. You know, first of all, you know, we got nominated, you know, we got nominated for a BAFTA, which we didn't actually get the BAFTA for best program but we got for best sound well it's the Beatles you know we're going to get best sound then we got nominated for an Emmy where it was in Los Angeles again so uh, so they said right who wants to go to LA for the Emmys I said yes please Jeff won for yeah we're gonna go Andy Matthews who was the editor Neil wasn't interested Neil had his Beatles business Chips Chipperfield who was one of my best friends who sadly now passed Chip says, I don't want to go to America. So me, Andy and Jeff go there and we fly out there. So it's held in Pasadena. So we're really excited. We thought, you know, we're going to win. It's a showing. So we get there. The Beatles didn't win. I think we lost to the secret, you know, the secret life of plants or something, you know, something that wasn't musical in any way, shape or form. And Jeff won for, he was furious. I was just happy to be there. Had my tux on, I'm in my limo, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we came back and then about, I think it was three months later, we found out that we'd be nominated for a Grammy. And Jeff says, I'm not going. And he says, oh, I'm a bit busy. I says, I'm going. I says, you know, where's it at? He says, oh, it's being held at Madison Square Garden. He says, Madison Square Garden, book me on that plane. So I went like, with a friend of mine called John Porteous. So he goes there and, you know, we checked into our hotel. I think we had a baby at the garden by, there you go, at the garden, Madison Square Garden, it's seven o'clock. So we're in the hotel room drinking, etc. And we say, right, we've got to get a limo. I think it was like four blocks from the hotel. That, I think it was the Standard Hotel or something. I can't remember. So we had to get the hotel from there to sort of Madison Square Garden. We thought, right, you know, we're going to turn up in the stretch limo. You've got to, right? Madison Square Garden for the Grammys. So the limo pulls up outside. We get in the limo. We're driving. And after like 20 minutes we've gone like half a block and it's getting closer and closer to, you know, the start of the show, right? Seven o'clock. So I think we've traveled probably two blocks. And I said to my mate, John, look, you know, we've got to get it out. We've got to run, run to the Grammys. So we run down, gets in there, you know, shows your pass, gets in just in time. And Hillary Clinton had just been given, she got the Grammy for, I think it was best spoken word album. And the next one up was, best you know video series or something if we got there five minutes later we would have missed it right so we sit in our chair and i think it was i forget who it was some some pop star you know he gets there and it says in the winner is you know is the beatles anthology so i literally i think i must have levitated from my seat in madison square garden onto the stage so i never forget i stood on stage and i hadn't you know i hadn't thought about any speeches but I remember standing there thinking, I was in a band, and if I'd ever thought I would be on stage at Madison Square Garden, not for being, you know, not in a rock and roll band, but collecting a Grammy for the Beatles anthology. So I remember saying, it's a long way from, you know, Newcastle in the northeast of England to, you know, Madison Square Gardens in New York. I'd like to thank John, Paul, George, and Ringo for getting us here. 
And then, you know, you get your Grammy, then you're ushered backstage and it's all the press is there. And normally they're sort of expecting, I think that was the year that Clapton won like eight Grammys or something, right? So I walk in and they say, who's this? Or it's Bob Smeaton from Newcastle. It's like, holy shit. But I did see Hillary Clinton backstage, right? So I saw Hillary and I thought, you know, there's the first lady. So I says, hi, Hillary. I says, you know, congratulations. I'm going to buy your album when I get back home. I've got to be honest, Joe, I haven't got Hillary's album. I didn't buy it. But, you know, so we're there, you know, watch the show, you know, go to the party afterwards and, you know, read the book. It's, you know, it was a great... Now, you know, I still get excited about it now just because it's something that I very rarely talk about. You know, I'm trying because I think, like, you try to look forward. But it was just, you know, Madison Square Garden. I was a welder in the shipyards. I think part of the thing was Neil Aspinall, he could have got anybody in for what they make the anthology. Talked about Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, but instead he got Jeff Wanford, Geordie that had worked on the tube, Bob Smeaton, Geordie. They got working class blokes in because I think they knew who was going to tell the Beatles story because Jeff Wanford, Jeff was a massive, massive Beatles fan. Jeff's older than me. I wasn't the world's biggest Beatles fan. I loved the Stones and I loved Zeppelin in The Who. But, you know, working on the anthology, you know, I came to it quite fresh. So I was hearing those albums almost for the first time. So I had that enthusiasm, which was new, not like, oh, it's an old band. It was almost like they were a new band. I actually owned one Beatles album, which I think was the Red Half of the Red and Blue compilations. That's all I had, all the singles. So, like, you know, I didn't own... Rubber Soul in Revolver. I didn't know the White Album. I was like, every day, this fantastic music. It was so great. And I'm eternally grateful every day. You know, I never forget how lucky I was. I was always thinking, I'm going to get fired, but I never did. Thank goodness you didn't, Bob. Um, so just, just to kind of conclude our, our yeah. chat now, um, just two things around the kind of legacy a bit of, of the anthology. Have you watched it recently? Are you ever in pain? I know you said about looking forward and stuff. It must be tempting sometimes to pop a DVD in and kind of relive it a little bit. And how do you feel about it looking back on it now? Um, you know, is there, is there anything that you might want to do differently or, that you're, or an element of it that you're particularly proud of? I remembered, you know, when I started when I when I started writing my um, book, I thought, got to watch the anthology again. So I'm not lying here; I hadn't watched it since we finished it. Like, you know, I had the DVDs here. I thought I've got to watch it. So I put the DVD in. I thought, right, I'm going to watch DVD one, then DVD two. Like the next day, I sat and I watched it all in one go. And it was the first time I'd ever watched it all the way through. And I tell you, it is Joe. I had tears in my eyes. Not because it was great. Chips Chipperfield had died. Neil Aspinall had died. Andy Matthews had died. And I thought of that and I remembered, I get goosebumps now, you know, thinking about that great time. And I tell you what it is, I wouldn't change a frame of it. If you spoke to Paul McCartney and said, what would you change on Rubber Soul? I would like to think that Paul would say, I wouldn't change a thing. And I think the same way. I sort of watched it through. It was very basic documentary making. All it was, was talking heads in archive. But what made it fly was those talking heads were John Paul, George Ringo, Neil Aspinall, Derek Taylor and George Martin, who don't appear on television 
talking about the Beatles in the archive was mind-blowing. We had access to all that material, and I wouldn't change a frame of it. You know, now you've got more cameras, do more stuff. You've got all these, you know, visual effects that you can use. But if you want to know the story of the Beatles, you are going to watch the anthology. You know, that is the story. And I think that we knew that people in long after we've long gone, people that want to know the story of the Beatles, they will watch the anthology. And I'll tell you what it is. It hasn't dated. It was just archived, great interviews. And I watched it through. And now, you know, it was, the, like I said, Joe, it was the first time I'd watched it from start to finish. And I'd actually forgot what was going to happen next. And I would say, and I was crying watching it. And I was singing, oh, no. And, you know, now, you know, I say, like, you know, Paul Weller, right? And whenever I meet big rock stars and they know I worked on the anthology, they will inevitably start talking about the Beatles. And Paul Weller said the same thing as you said, Joe. Hey, that boat, where was the boat? Where was Macca's boat? Like when Paul said, said this, you know, where were you then? People will still watch that. And I think that's the thing about the Beatles. You know, the Stones are a brilliant band. The Who are brilliant. Springsteen's brilliant. Marvin Gaye, Ray Charles, all these great artists. There is musical artists and then there's the Beatles. There's a reason why there's millions and millions and millions of records sold, all those thousands of books. But, you know, just to get back to my book, I didn't want to write the story of the Beatles. The story of the Beatles has already been told. I didn't use quotes from anybody else in that book. It was my, how they impacted upon my life, my life before the anthology, my life during the anthology, and how it impacted upon my life after that. And also, after being on stage at Madison Square Garden, because, you know, also I started on there as assistant director. So my job at the start of the project was quite low down. I didn't know I was going to be interviewing Paul, George and Ringo. Then my credit was going to be series director and writer. And then so I went from, you know, really low on the totem pole to right near the top. And then when I finished, I thought, that's it. The next job I did after that, Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies, Four years later, the Staples Center, I'm getting my second Grammy. So it wasn't a fluke, that <laughs> first one, because the Beatles were going to win the first. We, we were, that was a show-in. You know, I'd learned so much on that project to sit down and talk to um, those guys. I tell you what it is, right? I get more nervous speaking to like you than speaking to Elton John or Pete Townsend, which I did a couple of weeks ago, or Paul McCartney, because you get, you know, you lock into work mode. You think, right, I've got to get the information. I've got to make a film. It's not about Bob Smeaton. It's about what are these guys going to say? And can I make the film and represent them in the best way possible? And that's what the Beatles did. Life-changing. What a, what a great way to end, Bob. Um, just, just sum up, from, from Bone World Boy to 46th Beatle and beyond, it's a thrilling read. It's hilarious. It's eye-opening for all Beatles fans. There's a, a large chunk of anthology stuff in there. Some great pictures of you with your thumbs up next to all the, all the three Beatles. Brilliant stuff. Bob, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your memories today. Thanks very much, Joe. Hope to see you in person again soon. <laughs>